If you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible. And we've been going through the book of Mark, trying to get a handle on what God has said to us there. And we've made it all the way down to verse 23 of chapter 2. And we're going to make it all the way to the end of uh, verse 6, chapter 3 today. And so to brief you on the book just a little bit at this point, Mark, who is Simon Peter's secretary, if you will, has made his purpose for writing the gospel apparent from verse 1, chapter 1, wherein he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark believes and writes to the end of making you believe that Jesus is God himself, that he came, took on flesh, came like a man to absorb the wrath of God that is due to us himself, that's on our behalf, in order to reconcile us to himself. Mark begins proving that Jesus is God by highlighting the events of Jesus' life. And so it works a little bit like Sports Center, if you will, going from highlight to highlight. We see Jesus baptized and affirmed by the Father. We see him in the wilderness overcoming temptation. We see him to begin preaching the kingdom of God. We see him call the first disciples. We see him prove that he has authority in every realm as he heals diseases and casts out demons. We see his kingdom advance through prayer and through preaching. We see him forgive sins and make a paralytic walk and then we see that he has made himself the friend of sinners last week we saw that he was beginning to make all things new if you remember we said that you can't hold new wine and old wine skins they'll burst apart they'll be a little bit like mentos in a coke bottle it just doesn't go together and what jesus is doing is making all things new and that's what we're going to continue to see today as his kingdom advances these old categories are going to be burst apart These old systems that have become systems of work righteousness are going to be torn apart. Jesus has indeed come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to help us to understand it rightly. So that instead of using it like a ladder that we climb up to prove our moral perfection, it's going to be used a little bit more like a railroad track that pulls us more and more into holiness and closer and closer to the Lord. See, Jesus has not come to end religion, but to replace it with himself. He's come to show us that the law was a shadow, and he is the substance of that shadow. He's the reality to which the law points. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is claiming to be limitless. He's going to show us that he's limitless in his person, in his power, and in his goodness. That's going to relate directly to our one big thing this morning or the one principle we want to hold on to and think about throughout the week that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath and that we should rest in him. We're going to work through the text today in two simple parts. We're going to look at the grain fields and then the the scene is going to shift a little bit. We're going to look at the synagogue. So the grain fields and the synagogue. Would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Lord Jesus, give us a sense of your presence this morning. Let us forsake our systems of works righteousness. Father, teach us never to rely on our own convictions or our own resolutions. Help us to be strong in you and in your strength. Help us to never cease to find your grace sufficient. 
And Lord, do not allow us to confine our faith to extraordinary occasions, but enable us to acknowledge you in all ways, in the ordinary. Lord, help us to not pursue you for only an hour a week, but empower us to practice your presence in every moment. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. Father, open our ears that we might hear you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the text this morning, I want to point out that what we're going to study today are the fourth and fifth controversies in a series of five controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders. And these started at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm just pointing them out to you now. In chapter 2, at the beginning, they complained because Jesus was claiming that he could forgive sins. And so we see the religious people, the Pharisees, complain about that. Next, they're offended because he's hanging out with sinners. Then they're mad at him because he doesn't fast according to their customs and traditions. And now, in the fourth and fifth controversies, they're going to take issue with him because he does not honor the Sabbath in a way that they think he should. And so we enter those controversies in verse 23 of chapter 2, where we read, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so you can picture it a little bit. Jesus and his crew, they're walking along. They're seeing some food along the way. They're just picking those grain heads, rubbing them between their fingers, and they're eating a little bit. And so you might ask yourself, what's the big deal here? What's the problem? And I think to understand the problem or the disagreement that goes on here, we have to understand uh, a few things about the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was a day uh, from Friday evening until Saturday evening, wherein all ordinary work stopped in Jewish culture. The scriptures uh, relate that God gave his people the Sabbath as an opportunity to serve him and as a reminder of two great truths that we see in the Bible. And those two great truths are creation and redemption. Creation because on the seventh day God rested and redemption because of God's deliverance of his people from slavery to the Egyptians. And so the Sabbath, along with circumcision, had kind of become this thing that really set the Jews apart from other nations. And what had happened as uh, the rabbis had kind of added layers onto what it really meant to keep the Sabbath was it had become a burden rather than a blessing. And so the religious leaders in Judaism had kind of built a, uh, what we've talked about in Sunday school anyway, they built a fence or put some man-made rules and traditions around the actual law of God to ensure that it was honored, and so they kind of come up with extra things to protect, to make sure they didn't break the Sabbath. So they really wanted to make sure they didn't work on the Sabbath. And this general rule was, don't do any work that's not absolutely necessary. So it was understood that nothing was absolutely necessary except those tasks that could result in loss of life if they were left undone. And so the Jews have gone further, as we said, and they created kind of an elaborate system to distinguish work from non-work. And I think it's really illustrated well in the following ruling. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued. But if they were dead, the corpses had to be left until sunset, until the Sabbath was over. 
So to be clear, building falls down. You can move away just enough stones to see who's lived and who's died. And uh, if somebody's alive, you can help them. But if they haven't made it, then you've got to leave them there. Otherwise, it would be work. Another example of extremes uh, include limits on how much weight you can lift or how far you can walk. In fact, uh, traveling, you're not allowed to travel on the Sabbath, was defined as walking more than 1,999 paces which likely represents another violation of the Sabbath here by Jesus, but also by the Pharisees, so they don't, they don't bring that one up. But we're, we're going to focus on the one they do bring up, and that's the plucking of heads of grain. Basically, Jesus and his disciples are eating as they walk. So maybe imagine yourself walking through an orchard, and you just kind of grab an apple along your way, and you're just, you're just eating, having a good time. Nothing, nothing wrong. It's a, it's a Sunday. You're enjoying the weather. And, and even so, according to, to God's word in Deuteronomy 23, 25, plucking grain from a neighbor's field, it's, it's permissible. It's not considered stealing or in poor taste. It's something that's allowed. But what happened was some rabbis came along in a later ruling and said, hey, you can't pluck grain from your neighbor's field on the Sabbath. It's, it's harvesting. It's, it's a type of work. And so they're reproaching Jesus here and saying, why are you and your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It's kind of funny, they've had these questions over and over again. Why are you hanging out with sinners? Why does everybody else fast and you don't fast? If you're so spiritual, why are you breaking all of our rules? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And the question is, again, an accusation against Jesus. If you're so spiritual, why are you breaking the Sabbath? I think Jesus' response is both a little bit sarcastic and uh, most assuredly galling to the Pharisees. He says, have you never read? I love that, right? They're supposed to be really trained in religion and know all the scriptures. And Jesus is like, most assuredly you've read this. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest? And he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any to eat, but the priests, and also gave it to those who were with them. Now, immediately, if you read this part of Jesus' response, maybe you're like me, you're going, what are you saying, man? What are you saying exactly? And so I think we have to talk about the story to which he's referring. It takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And what's going on there is David, who's about to be king, is fleeing south because Saul is after him. Saul wants to kill him, in fact. And so he comes to this city, Nob, which is about a mile north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle is located. He has no food and he's hungry. There he meets a priest named Elimelech, and he asks the priest to provide him for food for himself and the guys that are with him. And eventually the priest gives David and his men the bread of presence to eat. And it's important to note that the bread of the presence was kept in the tabernacle on a golden table. It was very special bread. And it represented the need of the 12 tribes of Israel to have fellowship with God. It's only to be eaten by priests, nobody else. And they would eat it, and then new fresh bread would come in and replace it every Sabbath. And so David and his men, they enter the tabernacle, and it's during this time of Abiathar, the high priest. And if you notice, the actual name of the priest uh, in the story is Elimelech. But this period of time, because Abiathar would soon replace him and it would go on a little bit longer, they just refer to it as Abiathar's era. And so that's why Jesus uses his name rather than Elimelech. And so they ate this consecrated bread, this bread of presence, that nobody but priests is supposed to eat. 
the point of the story of Jesus of David eating this special bread is Jesus is making argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if David could be allowed by a priest to violate a divine symbol, maybe even on the Sabbath, we don't know, then the disciples could be allowed by the Son of God to violate an unbiblical regulation on the Sabbath. It's a greater to the lesser, right? If David could violate a divine prescription, certainly Jesus can violate human prescription. Jesus cites David's violation of the Torah not as an excuse for his action, but as a precedent for his action. Further, in making the allusion to David, Jesus is inviting a comparison between David and himself. See, David was Israel's royal messianic prototype, if you will. And Jesus is saying, hey, I am what you're looking for. I'm the true and better David. It's the first of several references or allusions to David in Mark's gospel that help define what kind of son of God Jesus is. Saying that David did this and one greater than David is here. He's saying, like David ate when he was hungry, so too are my circumstances special. Just as David was the king yet to be enthroned, so too am I the king yet to be enthroned. Jesus is the true king, not yet recognized. And he continues, if you will, he says, Furthermore, y'all have misunderstood the Sabbath. And we get to verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying the Sabbath is a blessing, not a burden. It's a gift to man. He says, I know, I created it, right? He's showing his person and his power are limitless. He's saying, I created the whole world. I created the Sabbath before you were even around. I mean, he drops the bomb of all bombs on their self-righteous minds in verse 28. I am he, he says, the sovereign ruler of the Sabbath. I'm the sovereign of this day. I designed this day. I am the creator. I mean, doesn't John tell us this at the beginning of his gospel? Everything was made by him and for him and without him was not anything made. So it is Jesus who ceased to work. I am the sovereign of this day, Jesus says. I am the interpreter of the will of God for this day. Pharisee, religious person, you do not rule the Sabbath. You do not set the standards of behavior for the Sabbath. I do. I interpret God's will and God's word. Jesus is the interpreter of God's will and his word. In fact, he is the word incarnate. Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing for men, not a burden. And ultimately, the Sabbath is about, I've decided anyway, you can disagree perhaps, but I think the Sabbath is about a satisfied rest that delights in God's work in creation and redemption. I mean, after all, if you've ever thought about creation in in Genesis, you go, so God creates, he throws the whole world together. It's pretty impressive. But you might think, God rests? What, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to rest? Like, does God get tired? No, I don't think God gets tired. He's limitless in his power. So how could he rest? 
I think a different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work, so utterly satisfied that you can just leave it alone. It's only when you can say about your work, I'm happy with it. It's it's perfect. It's, It's good. It's finished that you can walk away. I think when God has finished creating the world, he's saying it's good and he's resting. I've experienced a little bit of that putting together toys for my son. It's really frustrating. I don't know if it's exactly as hard as creating the world, but uh, I definitely, when you put something like a swing together for the little kid, you're like, man, I am satisfied. It is done. Usually looks nothing like the picture at the end. So the Sabbath is, it's about resting from our work. It's about delighting in God's work of creation. And it's also about resting in his good work of redemption. Now the Sabbath, the word means a deep rest, a a deep rest peace and it is a mere synonym for another hebrew word shalom and shalom is a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life you see jesus is the sabbath he has come to change the way that we rest just as israel was brought out of slavery to the egyptians so we have been set free from our slavery to sin in the system of works righteousness that we have set up. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for us so that we can, by faith in him, rest in God's presence. See, indeed, we, when we're united to Christ, are seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. And we're privileged to the immeasurable riches of his grace. Did you know that? When you believe in Jesus right now, you're in this room, it's true. But in Christ, you're seated at the right hand of God. And right now you have access to all of his riches, all the riches of his grace. Draw upon them, rest in them. Friends, rest from trying to make yourself right with God. You can rest in his peace. Jesus has given us wholeness and flourishing He's given us peace and rest. He is our Sabbath and our shalom. Thus, Paul writes in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow A reality that we have in Jesus. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 say that Jesus is our rest. And that we enter into the rest of the Sabbath only when we come to him. Christ is our Sabbath rest. We don't need the shadow because the substance is here. But let me pump the brakes a little bit and say to my Sabbatarian friend. There is great practicality in resting one day a week from your work. Right? It gives you an opportunity to kind of get away from the daily grind. It allows us to rejoice in and remember God's work of creation and his work of redemption. It reminds us to rest in Jesus' work and in him making us a new creation. It brings a balance to our rhythm of work and rest so that our lives are not consumed by one or the other. I think honoring a day off is a great blessing, not a burden. So I think that time off from work is a gift. And and I would ask you, are you enjoying it? 
Physically, does your life have a balance between work and rest? And then spiritually, are you consistently in rest, at rest in Jesus each and every day? Jesus is limitless in his power and his person. He is Lord of the Sabbath and we ought rest in him. Now our scene shifts to the synagogue. As we've said, Jesus' ministry is obviously pretty infuriating to the religious people. He is ending religion. He's replacing it with himself. He's overthrowing the system of legalistic works righteousness. And the reason it makes everybody so mad is because legalism is, is kind of this thing where you take, we take our own traditions and our own preferences and we impose them on others. And so we say, you have to do the things I do. Because if you don't, then I'm better than you, right? We set up the system wherein uh, it's kind of like an act of spiritual superiority. So even though the Bible doesn't make a, a particular practice universally prescriptive, we, we go ahead and do that. You know, legalism it sets up a type of spiritual economy wherein we can compare ourselves to other people favorably. So that we can claim to be, I don't know, better than them, superior to them, or closer to God I, than others. Better than the next day. I'm not, well, I might be bad, but I'm better than, than Joe, right? This is kind of the system that Jesus is destroying. He says, comparing yourselves to others and thinking that you are better than them or really a good person is not ultimately going to result in your salvation. Only those that go to the doctor can get the prescription to heal their illness. He's saying only those that know their spiritual poverty can be made right with God. He's saying self-righteous good works are without value in God's economy. The only currency that matters is the love of Christ. I mean, at the end of the day, Jesus is going to say to those that have imposed legalism, you're wrong. Nobody likes to hear that they're wrong or that they can't do something. And Jesus is telling them both and he's telling us both. That's what the gospel says. It says you can't save yourself. And you're wrong if you think you can make yourself right with God. Thus, the religious leaders are mad. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Those that oppose Jesus are looking for a way to discredit him, to bring a charge against him. And uh, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but see a little bit of us and the Pharisees here. I think we fall prey to legalism and trying to feel superior to others. Maybe by catching them in mistakes or in some kind of sin. I think we, like the Pharisees, look for opportunities that we might accuse one another of wrongdoing instead of looking for opportunities to build one another up in love like the gospel has called us to do. We forget what Christ has done for us. We take on ourselves the old yoke of slavery and of sin. Again, trying to make ourselves acceptable to others and to God on the basis of how much better we are at following rules than the next person. Or maybe some of us go the more rebellious route of self-discovery, which kind of has the same result. We, we set ourselves up as superior to others by deciding what is wrong, right or wrong for us. So we make our own rules. 
We look down on the less open-minded. It's funny, both moralism and relativism fail because both are ways of being your own savior. Both are hostile to the message of Jesus and both lead to self-righteousness. I mean, the moralist says, the good people are in, the bad people are out. And I'm the good people because I keep all the rules, right? And then the the relativist or the person that prefers self-discovery says, no, 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 no. Progressive, open-minded people, they're in. They're the good guys. Everybody else is out. And of course, we are the open-minded, progressive ones. It's this funny thing in Western culture. There's an enormous amount of self-righteousness about self-righteousness. Right? For example, we, we are so much better than people that think they're better than everybody else. And do you see the irony? How the way of self-discovery leads just as much to superiority and self-righteousness as moralism does. The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel doesn't say the open-minded are in and the judgmental bigots are out. The gospel says The humble are in, and the proud are out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Do you try to compare yourselves to others that you might build yourself up and establish your identity on the basis of being better than the next person? Is your attitude critical? Are you enslaved to self-righteous earning? Are you proud or are you humble? Friends, I exhort you to not look for opportunities to tear one another down, but to build one another up. And the way you'll be able to do this is when you rest satisfied in Jesus. So overcome by his love that you can't help but love one another. Back to the story. So Jesus knows they're looking for a way to accuse him. And in verse 3, he says this. said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. The silence of the religious authorities here is evidence for them that religion is about fulfilling obligations and stipulations rather than about the heart. It's analogous to driving the speed limit, even though the whole time you really want to go much faster, right? They're doing it because they don't want to get caught because they feel like they have to. I think this kind of religion can easily be separated from what our actual human need is. For the Pharisees, proper religion is not about the intent of the heart, but about things that can be tested, things that can be measured. It's about questions of theological correctness or matters of purity or of fulfilling legal requirements rather than about the heart and the attitude of faithfulness. And so the answer to Jesus' question, I think, is clearly that it's right to do good on the Sabbath. It's right to save life. 
But the silence of the Pharisees reveals that they're not concerned with the law truly or the prophets truly. They're concerned with themselves. After all, the law and the prophets are summarized with loving God and loving neighbor. These folks are not concerned with anybody but themselves. Their silence testifies loudly about their hardness of heart. And so Jesus tells us in verse 5, or Mark tells us in verse 5, and Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was restored. I think Jesus' disgust here at their hardness of heart is palpable so, so that we can taste it, right? But then right next to Jesus' anger, we also see that he is grieved or sorrowful. He's both angry and sorrowful at the same time. And, and these are the juxtaposed attitudes of God as he looks at the obstinate unbeliever. He's angry at the sin, yet he's grieved at the same time. Jesus will not be deterred by their wickedness or the coming accusations. He's going to do good, even though he knows that healing this man on the Sabbath is going to start their plans to kill him. He is going to love God and neighbor. He's going to do good. What about you? What, what keeps you from doing good? Jesus is going to do good even though it brings conflict. Does conflict sometimes prevent you from doing the right thing? I mean, obviously we want to live at peace with everyone. But we also have a higher calling to be obedient to God. To live out his will and do good. As we read in James, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. What prevents you from doing good? Pharisees show that they're more dedicated to themselves than to the Lord. That they're more dedicated to man-made traditions than the law. That they love themselves more than their neighbor, more than Jesus. And so they remain silent. What about you? Do you seek to serve yourself or others? Are you a voice for the poor and for the marginalized? For the orphan and for the widow? Or do you sit silently? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus is limitless in his goodness. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, we have to think about the man in this situation, right? He's got a bad hand and uh, most, I think probably one of his largest fears is before him. Right? Jesus is calling great attention to him in the synagogue. And so the man that has the withered hand, he has to make a choice. He might refuse and spare himself the humiliation and sit and, you know, kind of look away from Jesus. But in doing so, he would only, like the other religious leaders, refuse to open himself to the word of Jesus. The other choice is that he could take the risk of faith and act on the command of Jesus. He stretched it out, says Mark. And his hand was completely restored. See, in exposing himself to Jesus, he is healed. 
I think once again we see Mark describing faith without using the actual word. And so I ask you this morning, will you open yourself to the word of Jesus? Have you taken the risk of faith? Will you act on the command of Jesus? Will you respond to his words and turn away from self and towards him? He'll heal you today. Jesus has healed this man, and instead of rejoicing over the work of God, the Pharisees are concerned about their own work. The Pharisees are concerned about themselves, and so they give birth to the plot that had already been conceived in their hearts. In verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately. They held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. We see irony again here, right? The authorities deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and their kind are so set on destroying Jesus, they employ the help of a group that they're not friends with, the Herodians. They bring some weight to that that old phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. However, their common disdain for Jesus united them. They made kind of strange bedfellows at the end of the day. They had a pact to get rid of this Galilean troublemaker. The Herodians, you should know, they're not part of a distinct group or a political party. Uh, They're just wealthy, influential supporters of the Herods and their dynastic rule. See, both the Pharisees and the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat. The Pharisees saw him as a threat to their religious system, and the Herodians saw him as a threat to their dynastic power. And thus we see the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They have this pact. They're working towards finding a way to destroy Jesus. And so we have a verdict in Mark. It's early on. It's verse 6 of chapter 3. And the official response to Jesus from the religious people is kill him, kill him, kill him. What is your response to Jesus? Are you like the Pharisees? Looking for a way to destroy him. So that he cannot lay claim to your life. Do you want to dismiss the claims of Jesus by trying to dismiss the Bible? Especially the parts that you don't like. Do you try to destroy Jesus by saying something along the lines, well, there really is no absolute truth. It's, it's relative. We can't know what God has said to us. Do you try to destroy the claims of Jesus by saying he's just one of many ways to God? Men have been to trying to destroy Jesus for a long, long time. They all have failed, and many more will fail. Because Jesus is limitless in his person, in his power, and in his goodness. Don't be foolish enough to think that Jesus can be defeated. I mean, many thought he was defeated on the cross. They thought he was trapped in the grave, and they only discovered that it was through the cross that he had defeated darkness. See, all that seek to destroy Jesus will eventually bend the knee, willingly or under the wrath of God. And the clock is ticking on all of us. All of us in this room will die, and no one knows exactly when. Today could be your day. I mean, this week could be your week. This year could be your year. 
So I ask, are you ready to die? When you go before the Lord, you're going to point to all those good things that you did? If you do, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. And you will experience inexplicable suffering and pain. But the good news of the gospel is that you were so wicked that Jesus had to die for you, yet you are so loved that he was glad to die for you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was destroyed on your behalf and that through his destruction you can have life. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lives and that you too can live. If you only like the man with the withered hand, respond to the words of Jesus, not with a plot to destroy him or to discredit his claim on your life, but turn from yourself and your sin and place your faith in him. Friend, I implore you, stretch out your hand. Jesus will give you rest. You need only to believe. He offers you wholeness flourishing peace and rest he is shalom and sabbath he is limitless in his person and his power in his goodness he's lord of the sabbath he's lord of all rest in him this morning would you pray with me dear heavenly father we thank you for this time we have together and we pray that it would be a time of renewal and of encouragement time where we come before you and drink of the living water and prepare to go throughout the rest of the week practicing your presence. We pray that it would be a time of conviction, of repentance, a time of renewed confidence in you. Lord, empty us of ourselves this morning and fill us with your spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. That you have commanded us to stretch out our hand. That you have allowed us the opportunity to respond in faith. Lord, your grace and your mercy are immeasurable. Help us to delight in them this morning. Help us to delight in you, our Savior, our God, our treasure. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.